God, our prayer is that um, we are able to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying to us today. And um, beyond that, that we, you would give us ears to hear and to respond favorably to whatever you ask of us. And in that way, would we have uh, something memorable happen today? And may all of our summers have something memorable about what you are doing in our lives. So that we would all look back on the summer of 2011 as some kind of a memorable spiritual phase of our lives. And would what you say to us today be a part of that? And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I'm going to introduce a uh, new component of some things on Sunday morning, the mystery thing game. This may be the only week we do it. I just thought I'd introduce it. And All right, mystery thing game. You have to guess based on the clues. All right, clue number one. Now, if you know the answer, don't shout it out. Most likely, everyone here has at least one. That's, that's really difficult. Number two, men may have more than women. Clue number three, some people want to get rid of them. A guitar player, now stop on this one. A guitar player might have more of these, all right? Might give a little more clues to some of you, especially you musicians. You're like, what do I have more of other than like earrings or body piercings? But anyway, uh, next one. You can get these from playing too much with your Xbox or Wii. Children, adults, <laughs> teenagers, college students. All right, now, here's a definition. This might help you. These mystery things are formed by the accumulation of terminally differentiated keratinocytes on the outermost layer of the skin. The, the cells are dead. If you understand this, you're really smart. They are quite resistant to the mechanical and chemical insults due to the extensive networks of cross-linked proteins and hydrophobic keratin intermediate filaments containing many disulfide bonds. Don't say it out loud yet. Who knows what we're talking about? Okay, next one. Going to add a couple more clues. Here we go. A hardened, thickened part of the skin found often on feet or hands. The correct answer is a callus. That's a very exciting thing to talk about in church, isn't it? A callus. <laughs> Most of you have them on your feet. Uh, guitar players, Andrew, you guys probably have one on your fingers, fingertips. Where's Andrew? Fingertips, probably some. You, you most likely, everybody has one on the finger you lean your pencil or pen against. All right. Um, Calluses, are, uh, you know, you get on wikipedia.com, you find some interesting things about calluses. Um, to remove them, I was asking my wife about this. Uh, she has a sister that had them cut off, all right, you know, on her heel. And then my wife has one of these things in the bathtub. Is it called a pumice stone? Yeah. You kind of, you can sand it off, you know. So maybe I can give it to Andrew and he can sit the whole service and sand off his calluses. Although, in his case, he wants the calluses. Yeah, he wants to build them right back up, all right. There's also chemical ways... You can remove a callus. Now, you know, in some cases, you don't want a callus removed, but other cases, you want them. You, you want them removed because they can become irritations. But a callus is that thickened, hardened part of the skin, and it usually results from friction. Think about it. You have friction, friction, friction on a guitar scene, friction, friction, friction on the heel of your shoe. One of the things I read was women who wear high-heeled shoes often get calluses in the back of their heels. So any callus you have most likely was developed because of irritating friction. All right? And then maybe it started as a blister. The blister healed. More friction and the callus forms. All right? This word callus, the whole idea of the idea of callus actually shows up in the Bible. Not on somebody's feet or on somebody's hands, but on their hearts. And it's, in that case, it's very undesirable because it's, it becomes deadened. 
My, my kids can stick a needle in my feet and I can't feel it because I'm deadened to the stimulation. So the question of the morning is going to be this. What do you deal with? What do you do when you have a callus on your heart? What do you do when because of the repeated friction of the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention about something, you've learned ways to ignore it? Yeah, it might have blistered at first, but then you developed a pretty convenient but unfortunate callus on your heart on some area of your life. And what the Bible would call that is your heart becomes hardened in a certain area. And when we look in the Bible, we look at some of the things today when the word hardened shows up, it's the same in the original language. It's kind of the same word they use for calluses. So what do you do when you, how do you deal with a callus on your heart? How do you even know if you have one? How do you know if you have one of these thick, resistant spots on your heart that's resistant to any kind of stimulation? Because what we've been doing has been going through the Gospel of John, and on this one I just put Jesus, friction. Because most of the stories, if not all the stories in the Gospel of John, when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when he interacts with the Jewish people, even with the disciples to some degree, he loves to mess up status quo. He loves to challenge the way things are because the way things are in those days and even in my life or your life aren't as the way God wants them to be. So Jesus comes along... And he's a friction master. All right? He loves to kind of sandpaper down things on your heart or come on with, with, with what I would call sometimes irritating pressure. That's how calluses are developed, irritating pressure. And what you and I have to be able to deal with then is how do we have the grace and courage to respond to the irritating pressure and let Jesus change our lives, flip them upside down, reorient them? Or is there some area of your life where you've allowed that friction and you've decided your response to, that, to Jesus was going to be kind of closing your ears, closing your eyes? Or even like the Pharisees, I want to stone him sometimes because he makes me so upset. And then you realize when it's too late, and maybe you don't even realize it because the callus is so thick, there's an area of your life or maybe many areas of your life where you have a resistance to the things of the Holy Spirit in your life. Next one. Um, let me just start with this phrase. This shows up a number of places in the Bible. It shows up in our text for today. Here's the statement. Actually, read it out loud with me. Here we go. The Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and have, them, have me heal them. Now, first reaction to that is what? I mean, the Lord has, heart, has blinded their eyes and he's hardened their hearts. First reaction is, is it their fault then? I mean, if God, the one that developed the callous, if God's hardening their hearts, do these people even have a chance? And who are these people anyway that we're talking about? Now go to the next slide, because here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your own name in that spot there and see if you, how you feel differently about it if we were to say, the Lord has blinded Matt's eyes and hardened his heart. I'll change the pronoun too. So, that their eyes can, so his eyes can't see and his, hearts can't, his heart can't understand. He can't turn to me and have me heal him. So take a second and read it with your name. Change the pronouns to the appropriate gender.
Now, when you bring it home, and you put your own name in the blank, how do you feel? Out loud, anybody, somebody. What's your response if, because if God can blind people's hearts, and you're people, I'm people, we're people, people, is it possible that God can, the Lord can blind my eyes and harden my heart? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Because when I read this, when I put my name in the blank, my first reaction is, oh, no. Not. At first it's like it would never happen to me. And then I think, oh, yeah, I could see that happening to me. And then my reaction is, please don't let that happen to me. And it's interesting, you know, we like to blame... Am I, am I popping here? Am I better? Maybe I shouldn't. I won't do that. Okay. <laughs> I will if I need to get your attention. Wake up. All right. All right. Now, what's interesting when we, uh, and we're going to look at this whole idea of God hardening hearts, because really it's kind of like, like blaming the high heels for causing the callus. I mean, who caused the callus? The high heels or the person that wore them? Women, sorry. Or men. Who caused the callus? You know, uh, the tight tennis shoes you wore, the brand new tennis shoes you wore, or the fact that you wore them when you should have broke them in first. So who's really responsible for the hardening in that situation? You could blame the shoe, I suppose, but it's kind of hard to blame a shoe. Here we go. Let's go to the next one here. Here's the passage, all right? John chapter 12, and that passage we just read originally shows up in Isaiah chapter 6, but it shows up in this passage, so we're looking at it. John chapter 12, uh, Jesus had spent the first 11 chapters, 11 and a half. John has written all this down. Jesus spent a lot of time causing friction with people. Most recently, he just raised Lazarus from the dead, which was the ultimate act of friction. The Pharisees decided we have to kill him now because now the friction is causing us problems, significant problems. And then uh, this is where, you know, the, right before this, Mar- uh, Mary pours ointment on him, perfume on him. And, and this, is, this passage is the last passage of Jesus' public ministry before we slide into the Last Supper and toward his crucifixion, all right? This is what John writes. John wrote this about 60 years after Jesus died. So he's kind of remembering this. At this point, John's being the narrator, as he is in the whole book. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Even when he healed the blind, he cured cured lepers and raised people from the dead. My assumption is, your assumption is, would be, of course they're going to believe now, right? But it says most people still didn't believe him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. And just to remind you too, John's writing this to Jewish people who are spread all around the Mediterranean region. They're not all in Israel anymore. They're all spread around. But they know the Bible. They know the Old Testament prophets. They know the Jewish Bible. And so John's trying to help reintroduce them to Jesus and show this is what's going on here. And he says, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message, to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? 39, but the people couldn't believe. This is John. For as Isaiah also said, here's our phrase, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts can't understand and they cannot turn to me and have them heal me. Isaiah was referring to Jesus 
when he said this. Isaiah was written about 750 years before John wrote this. So obviously this all happens with the introduction and the in interruption of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people like Isaiah and John to give them the ability to interpret it this way because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. All right, let me look at the word harden here for a second. Because um, again, the, the reaction sometimes is, wait a minute, if God's hardening, you know, Nathan's heart, is it really Nathan's fault that God hardened his heart because then is Nathan just a victim of God's kind of divine randomness kind of thing? And you might, if you, go, if you know the Bible stories well, you might zero back all the way to when the children of Israel were about to leave Egypt. And you remember there were times where it said, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. But what you also need to know from the story, too, is the first couple times the word hardened shows up in the story, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not do what Moses and Aaron had asked him to do, which was what God had told them to ask him. Second time, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh and his officials hardened their heart. Then you'll have in there, too, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So it's like, it's again saying that the high heels hardened my foot, but maybe I shouldn't have been wearing them. And it's, it's not a sense that God just randomly hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had a lot of choice in the matter, and he began the ball rolling. And then God let spiritual gravity take its course as of how he designed us to be. He designed us as free creatures, but he also designed a way in which he interacts with us. And yeah, God is all-knowing and all-powerful, but in his all-knowing powerfulness, he designed us as really free people. So when you read this, it's not just that God said, hey, I'm just in a bad mood today. I'm going to harden their hearts. They had started the ball. We start the ball rolling by rejecting what God says to us. All right, next one. Here's the question on this area. This one. Is there some area of your heart where you are hardened, calloused to the voice of God? My assumption is, if you're here this morning, you have some significant, as do I, some significant soft places toward God, pliable places to God, nice, smooth, silky, Jergens lotion kind of skin toward God. But if you're like me, there, also, there often are parts of your heart, and maybe you're not even aware because it's so callous, where you have a hardness toward what God's asking you to do in a certain area of your life. Maybe it's in terms of your relationships. Maybe it's habits you have. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's something else. And it's, you've resisted the friction of God so long that you've even forgotten that was an issue. So the question I'll just throw out is, is there some area... Or would you at least be willing to ask God, you know, to be the, not to be, not to be uh, blasphemous, but to God to be the podiatrist that looks at your feet and tells you if there's really calluses there or not? Because you don't even know it anymore. I mean, I'm, my wife doesn't even want to look at my feet, not that we, like, show our feet to each other anyway, but she's, they're so callous, and I'm like, I didn't know that. Because I don't feel them. Sometimes you need someone else to tell you that. Sometimes maybe there's things people have said to you that you're like, oh, that can't be true, it's not true, it's not true. Maybe God's using them to be the voice of the podiatrist. You said, no, it is true. There's a callus in a certain part of your life. And you, you better let God deal with it. And what, the, the way God removes calluses, if friction causes calluses, friction also removes calluses. And sometimes the friction of sanding or the pumice stone or some kind of acidic chemical is not really comfortable, but it's where you want to be. So that's the question. One of the questions is, is there some area of your heart 
where you've hardened to God. Maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it's a certain way of how you relate to your husband or your wife, or maybe it's a certain way of some habit that you think is not really, it's just kind of a small deal. It's not a big deal. Why would God care about that anyway? I mean, it's just a TV show. It's just that. It's just that. But you've always had, you have often had this sense that God was trying to get your attention about something. You've so neglected the tension and the friction that now you're just like, that's not a big deal. All right? Just wondering. Next. Finish the passage here. Many people did believe in him, however. So it said most didn't believe. A lot of more hardened. So that's kind of one category of people. And sometimes we have those kind of dynamics inside of us. We have to be honest with that. However, some did believe, including some of the leaders. Remember Nicodemus and other Jewish leaders that seemed to kind of think... I think he's the guy. I, I, I believe what he's saying, and I think the way he's saying we should be living our lives to really understand the, what God can do in our lives and for our lives, I think Jesus is the guy. And that's a huge thing for a Jewish person to say about a person because the Messiah was not just the guy, it was the one who would turn the world right back side up again, if that's the right way to say it. And it would also give us and them the life we've always dreamed of, a life of fullness and strength and forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and kindness and joy. So some of the leaders did believe, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees, which were the religious power guys, the spiritual giant-slash-egotistical maniacs kind of thing, the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. 43 is kind of a knife to the heart. For they loved human praise more than the praise from God. So they weren't hardened. They believed, but they didn't really want to talk about it very much. They didn't want people to know that. And so, because I really, I really like what I get from these people, you know, the praise, the adoration, the admiration. And if they knew I followed Jesus, I may not get that. And I'm not sure if I can live my life without that because I like that kind of affirmation and admiration. And maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Question. Why do you love praise from people more than you do praise from God? And I include myself in this, and I phrase the question intentionally assuming that it's true. Instead of, do you love? The reality is, this side of heaven, all of us are growing in our ability to kind of ignore the praise of people. But let's be honest, we're still, I, you, all of us, in ways we're blinded to probably, are still held captive, chains, to the fear of the opinions of others. And is there some decision, is there some thing you've done or have thinking about doing that you're letting the opinions of people weigh too heavily into the equation and you're almost like I, I, I want praise from God but I don't feel that right now but I really like what this person's saying to me or about me or for me and I really need to do this I know it's probably not something God would want but my husband my wife wants this my boss my whatever my kids want me to do this well I don't know whatever, whatever it is you know there was a time where there was uh, there were two things I felt like Jesus was asking me to do and they were really simple things. Both of them involved conversing with two different people about two different things. Uh, both of them would, would have a healing effect on those people and on me. All right? 
And I remember telling my wife, I won't tell you all the details, but I remember, I remember telling my wife, yeah, there's a couple things I think God, I know, I felt like I knew, I could say I knew God's asking me to do a couple conversations, and, I, and I'm not doing it. This was like two weeks after I first sensed God was saying this. And my wife said, well, why not? And I said, well, because I'm a wimp. And I'm, I care about what those people think about me more than, I guess, what I care about God's asking me to do. Because both those situations could have turned bad, and they could have had negative opinions about me, even though I think they'd be healing for me and for them. But if I was honest, my, cons- my, my resistance of trusting the Spirit of Jesus in what could be a healing thing was because, yeah, but if I do the odds, kind of the Las Vegas thing, the odds are decent that they may not like me. How many times have you not done something you felt God was saying for you to do because your concern was, what if X doesn't like me because of this? Or what if Y thinks I'm a little bit odd because I do that? You know, what if this person thinks I've maybe gone off the deep end if I talk too much about Jesus? So I'll just keep it generic at religion and God, because everybody likes religion and God. But I talk about Jesus, my coworkers might think I'm a little bit weird. So why do you love praise from people more than you do praise from God? Next one. Finish the passage. Jesus. Now, now, now John was a narrator. Now John's kind of throwing back in, uh, kind of back to the scene of what was going on. And he says, Jesus then shouted to the crowds, If you trust me, you're trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you're seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Notice the word trust. It's not just believing a cognitive thing. It's trusting. Trusting is a relational concept. The word belief and the word trust are translated from the same Greek word, so the belief is not just, yeah, I believe two plus two is four, but it's a, it's a relational thing. It's a tr- relational trust. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me. For I've come to save the world and not to judge it, but all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. So Jesus, I didn't come to judge people. That's, that's God's business, which would be good for us to kind of have the same mentality. Our job is not to condemn or judge people in, that, in the condemning kind of judgment. Well, yeah, discernment, yes. Condemning judgment, no. That's God's job. That's not our job. Jesus knew that. But all who reject me and my message, hold on, I didn't did I finish that? Oh, I guess I did finish it. We'll be judging the day and the truth I have spoken. All right, now we go. I don't speak, Jesus. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. It's incredible how obedient... Jesus was, but often we, we associate obedience with some kind of repressed, oppressed kind of personality. But Jesus was the most fully alive, fully joyful person that ever lived, lived and walked the earth. But he says, I'm, I'll do whatever, I do whatever the Father tells me to do. I say what he says. Not what to say, but even, not just what to say, but how to say it. And Jesus said, I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I'll say whatever the Father says to say. I mean, what would it look like if you or I had the same take on that that Jesus has? Where we say, I'm, I'm going to say whatever the Holy Spirit tells me to say. 
and I'll say it exactly how God tells me to say it because I think that's what God knows will bring life to me, my relationships, and my pe- everybody around me and to my community. All right, here's the question from this one. Are you missing out, and I'll explain this, are you missing out on living an eternal kind of life? Jesus said God's commands lead to eternal life. Are you missing out as a result of trusting Jesus with only 90% of your life? Because Jesus kept saying, if you trust me, trust, 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 trust. And I'm saying eternal kind of life because when, when in the New Testament, when the, word, when the phrase eternal life comes into play, it does not simply mean some kind of life, life uh, extension after death. The average Jewish listener, when they heard the word eternal life, did not think, oh, he's talking about going to heaven after I die. That's not what the Jewish listener would have heard when Jesus said eternal life. What they would have heard was, oh, he's talking about the, a life for the ages, a deep, rich, satisfying, joy-filled, energized life beyond the limit satisfaction kind of life now that will naturally have its end in the afterlife because that's what I've already walked into. So then the question is, are you missing out on living some, on your eternal kind of now life in June of 2011 as a result of trusting Jesus with only 90% of your life? Is there 10% of your life you haven't yet trusted to Jesus yet? Again, relationships, money, habit, future, whatever. And again, this, the last 10% is often hard to see. I mean, it is for me. I know there's other, none of us 100%, none of us have scored 100 on this question, by the way. So are you missing out on the rest that he talks about? I'm, I, when God says, they will not enter my rest, they will, not, they will not experience the eternal kind of now life because they're holding out on me trusting me because they don't trust that I really will provide this. Let me finish with a passage from Hebrews chapter 3. Because um, I think, you know, when we read about hardening, like I said, we often can say, well, yeah, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but he was kind of a pagan, so I don't see myself in that story. And then we read, you know, the psalm we read at the start of the service. I don't know if you remember that psalm. Um, it talked about do not harden your hearts. And it referred to the Israelites when they left as, as, as God's people did at Meribah and Massah. Well, that was when they were leaving Egypt. So they left the hard-hearted Pharaoh behind. They're leaving Egypt. They're complaining that God's not, God's not giving us water. God's not giving us water. We're thirsty. And it says that they, they hardened their hearts toward God. So these were God's people hardening hearts toward God. Well, still at that point... We can say, well, that's kind of Old Testament. You know, Jesus came, and once Jesus gave me a new heart, which is true, he gives me a new heart. The hard thing is behind me now. Heart of stone's removed. And I'd say, you know what? Jesus does give us new hearts. The heart of stone is being removed in me and you. But in Hebrews, this is post-Jesus, post-resurrection, 30 years or so, probably after John wrote John, the writer of the Hebrews is writing, encouraging Jewish people around the world of what it means to follow Jesus. And I think at this point, we have to see ourselves in this story. And let me read the first part of the chapter, and then I will, uh, we'll see some more on the screen. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and who are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. 
For he was faithful to God who anointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire household. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as the person who builds the house deserves more praise than the house itself. Then let's jump ahead to verse 12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, that's you and me, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving turning you away from the living God. You must encourage each other every day. Some of the versions will actually use the word warn. You must warn each other every day. But it's the same word that's also translated for encourage. It's kind of this strong encouragement every day while it's still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and what? Hardened against God. For if we're faithful to the end, trust in God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Joy, life, abundance. Then the passage finishes with this. Remember what it says today when you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. It's interesting how the hardening of hearts in the Bible is often, if not almost exclusively, tied to the ability to hear. Also see, but also hear. So today... June 26th, right, 2011. We're out of the first century now. We're out of the Mediterranean region. We're in Bloomington, Indiana, Monroe County, 47401, 47404, whatever your zip code is. Today, when you hear, your voice, hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. All right, say that out loud with me. Ready? Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. One more time. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Holy Spirit, this week when you speak to us, would you also put that little tagline on behind it? That today, when we hear your voice, we're not going to harden our hearts. And whether you're asking us to give a dollar away, give an hour away to somebody to serve them, or even give significant parts of our life away, um, would we not harden our hearts to the little whisper that you give us? And for those of us here who have maybe rejected some of your whisperings and have calloused over, God, please in your mercy and grace, would you uh, keep talking to us? Um, take the calluses off. Even if it's painful, even if it's grinding and sanding, we want to be fully alive in you more than we want our own selfish ways. So God, you alone bring us joy. You alone bring us the life of Jesus to be lived now and today. And that's what we want. Here at Exodus, uh, we finish, you can look up here, we finish every Sunday with communion. And we do that because what we're really saying is, today, I need Jesus. It's not that I have him and I have my hip pocket, I'm good, I got my ticket to heaven, I'm good to go. That happened weeks ago, months ago, years ago, but it's today I need Jesus. Today I need to hear his voice. Today I need to respond to what he's asking me to do. So today we take the bread and the cup and Jesus said that, and this was, happens in the next few chapters of John, he says, and this is my body given for you, remember me, do this to remember me. Every time you eat this, remember me. Here's the cup. He said, this is the blood. Represents the blood in my, my body that I'll shed for you. It represents this new promise I'm giving to you. And the new promise is, 
you will have a new heart. And the old, hard, stony heart is coming out. You just got to let me do that, Jesus says. That's the promise. So whenever you do this, this ritual of bread from Kroger and grape juice from Welsh's or whatever, you know, that's all it is. But it's a mental symbol and a mystical kind of invisible world way where you're saying to Jesus today, I need more of you and me. I want to be a 100% truster. I don't want to have hard parts of my heart that are calloused. And I'm sick and tired of living a life where I'm afraid of the opinions of other people. All right, that's what we do. So here's how we do it. Exodus, Jer- uh, Jeremy's going to lead us in a few more songs. People are going to come up here and help us serve. And then as we start singing, we just invite you on up. Uh, either one of the aisles. Uh, take tear off a piece of bread and then just uh, dip it in the cup. Don't try to drink out of the cup. We just dip it just for the sake of how we do it here. And when you do that, when you're swallowing that down into, your, into you, you're saying to Jesus, today, when I hear your voice, I am not going to harden myself. Doesn't mean you've had a perfect record so far. None of us have. If that's the case, we'd all should just stay seated. But it's, okay, it's a new day. Today, when I hear your voice, I'm not going to harden myself. All right? So, uh, Jesus, thank you for your life, your uh, body, and your blood. Thank you for opening up this new and living way for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.